Welcome to Sunday School 930. So we are going to get started. Today, we are wrapping up our look, our more extensive look at creation by examining creation compromise. What are common positions that believers take on the books of Genesis, creation, and the age of the earth that are actually forms of compromise? We have examined the relevant Bible passages on creation ourselves over the last seven weeks, trying to be very careful to submit to the Bible's authority first and letting it assess claims from other truth sources and not the other way around. Through our study, we have come away with a view affirming a literal six-day creation and a young earth of about 6,000 years. This view is not merely my opinion, the opinion of answers in Genesis, or the opinion of the elders of this church, it is the view that is apparent from an honest assessment of the biblical texts. Having studied the passages ourselves, we are now ready to examine other viewpoints on creation common in today's church. We'll be examining three, yeah, three of the main old earth interpretations of Genesis. The gap theory, progressive creation, and theistic evolution. There are plenty of other viewpoints on Genesis that we won't have time to talk about today. And even within these three common views, there are many suppositions and nuances that people believe. Still, even though we can talk about all the viewpoints, examining these three common views in a general fashion will give us a good framework for understanding old earth creation beliefs that are held by many of our brethren today. Why is it that Christians subscribe to these points of view if, as I've been arguing, the account in the Bible is actually very clear? How is it that we still have many who believe in an old earth? Well, I think there are a multitude of reasons, but it often comes down to just three factors. One, they haven't taken the time to think through it. They haven't taken time to think through these issues all the way. Two, they've been taught that there is no conflict between today's scientific claims and the Bible, and that an old earth understanding of the, uh, of the Genesis text and other places in the Bible is normal. And then finally, they have too high a view of the authority of man and his scientific interpretations and too low a view of the authority of the Bible. If you find yourself agreeing with an old earth interpretation or with part of the old earth interpretations that I'm sharing with you today, I urge you, please listen to the previous Sunday School lessons that we've done on creation. Speak with me. Speak with one of the elders about your questions or your objections. Check out the creation books in our book nook, like Coming to Grips with Genesis, one that I've used and really appreciated. Check out the articles and answers in Genesis's website. Many, many things that I would urge you to do. Above all, make sure that you yourself have thought through these issues all the way and that you truly believe the word of God to be authoritative even if or when contradicted by today's scientific or archaeological community. That's going to make a big difference in how we interpret the books of Genesis, I mean the, the creation account. Let's pray now before we go on. Lord God, I thank you that you are real and that you have made your word clear. Lord, help us to... Let us be mentally honest. God, help us to recapture the hermeneutic 
method that we always should be using that believers since the establishment of the church were supposed to use. God, I pray that you would give me the ability to explain. I pray, God, that your glory would be upheld. I pray, God, that you would be so gracious as to prevent my dear brothers and sisters from injuring themselves by drifting into error when it comes to creation. Bless this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to get a fresh taste of the creation account once again, we're going to start by going back to Genesis 1 and rereading some of the verses there. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're just going to read verses 1 to 8 to reacquaint ourselves with how the Bible speaks about creation. So Genesis 1, we're reading verses 1 to 8. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there is evening, and there is morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. From what we have just reread, and from what we previously studied in chapters 1 and 2, let me just ask a few questions. Does the text indicate a gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2? No. Obviously, in the first day of creation, there is some time going by, but there's no indication of a large gap. It appears to be all part of day one's action. And just in case, just in case we're unsure about this, remember our memory verse, Exodus 20.11, which says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Which is exactly what Genesis 1.1 says, right? That's part of the six days. Made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Second question. Are there indications in the text that the days of creation are overlapping? Again, no. It's quite the opposite. We're told specifically about a day beginning and ending before the next day begins. Third question. Is there any reason from the text before us to think that the events of the chapter took place over millions or billions of years? No, there isn't. The narrative describes a chronological sequence of six 24-hour days. That's the way the Hebrews would have understood it. And finally, is there anything from Genesis 1 to 2 that indicates mankind evolved from some earlier man-like creature? 
No, there isn't. Genesis 2 actually indicates a creation sequence in which man was rapidly created from dust. And later, woman was fashioned from that man's rib, rapidly and miraculously. Now, I ask you these basic questions because they relate a lot to the viewpoints we're about to discuss. We always must start with the scriptures. And when we do, we don't, we don't come away with these with these conclusions about the text. Now, you should have received a worksheet for today's class entitled Christian Views on Creation. If you didn't, please let George know in the back. I think he has more copies of that. Please take that out. As we go through these different views, we're going to fill in the columns on your worksheets, on your charts. There's a column for a young earth, biblical creation view, and then three columns for three old earth interpretations. The way I'm going to do this is that I'm going to give you a little description about each viewpoint, and then we're going to go back and double-check that we have all the information filled in on our charts. And we should be able to fill in the column on, or we should be able to fill the first column in by now. So let's do that. In a young Earth view, the view we've been arguing is biblical, how old is the universe? About 6,000 years. So put that in in the top left column. About 6,000 years. How old is the Earth? About 6,000 years, because it's created at the same time as the rest of the universe. So both of those, about 6,000 years. How can we describe the days of creation? What kind of days were they? That's right. We have literal 24-hour days. Days of creation were 24-hour days. How did life, so now we're on to the fourth blank in this column, how did life, the different animal kinds and man, come into existence? That's right, God spoke it. God commanded it. God spoke creatures into existence and gave them the breath of life. We're told that he did that for the animals and for man. Fifth blank. Can we be more specific about how God created man? How do you do it? Yeah, he made man from the dust, miraculously. And when did he do it? Yeah, day six, about 6,000 years ago. He's created at the beginning of creation, at the beginning of the world. So we have man created from the dust, from the dust, made in God's image, and by God's command, about 6,000 years ago. What is the origin of death? It's Adam's sin, right? Someone said sin. Result of Adam's sin, death comes into the world and corruption. Second to last blank, Genesis 1 to 11 are to be treated as what kind of genre? History. Historical narrative or history. And then finally, how can we describe the flood event? A global flood that killed all life except which was on the ark. Definitely a global cataclysmic flood. So that's the, that's the young earth the biblical view. Now we're going to look, we're going to examine these three other views. But where did these ideas come from? Where did these old earth, old earth ideas come from? Well, as I've been saying, old earth ideas first appeared in the early 1800s as geologists began suggesting that the earth was actually millions of years old, according to uniformitarian assumptions that treated the Bible as non-factual. They said the processes that we see today are the same processes that have formed everything on the earth. 
during that time, theologian by the name of Thomas Chalmers suggested that there was a gap between the first two verses of the Bible. His contemporary, Hugh Miller, thought it made more sense to, instead of inferring a gap, to treat the days of Genesis 1 as long ages. This is the first time that these kind of interpretations were made about the creation account. These ideas grew in popularity in the 1800s, and different forms of the ideas have been taught in churches around the world since then. Now let's take a look at each view more specifically, starting with the gap theory. Although there are variations, the basic teaching of the gap theory is that billions of years ago, they don't know exactly when, no one can determine it, God created the universe and everything in it, just as it says in Genesis 1.1. God placed Lucifer, that is Satan, in charge of the earth. But sometime during the subsequent millions of years, Lucifer rebelled. As part of God's judgment against Satan and the corrupted world that Satan ruled, God sent a global flood, termed Lucifer's flood, in their thinking, which destroyed all plant and animal life on the earth, thus producing the fossil record that we see in the rock layers. As a result of God's flood judgment, the earth is covered by water in Genesis 1-2. That's how all the water got there. At the same time as this flood, the earth was plunged into darkness, and thus, instead of Instead of the verse meaning was without form and void, they interpret it to mean became without form and void. God then began a second creation, completed in six literal days, just as is recorded in Genesis 1-3 to the end of the chapter. Again, this view was proposed by Thomas Chalmers in the early 1800s to accommodate the idea of millions of years and was popularized by resources such as the Schofield Reference Bible, which was a which was one of the first modern study Bibles that was published in the early 1900s. One final note, typically for gap theory adherence, the age of the Earth and the universe are left to science to determine, but biological evolution is rejected. Okay, let's take that description and let's fill in our chart. See if you can help answer these questions with me. For most proponents of the gap theory, how old is the universe? It's billions of years old. It's at least as old as scientists say, but no one can truly know. Because the only, the only record we would have in the fossils is of Lucifer's flood, and we don't know exactly when that took place. So the universe is billions of years old, and the Earth. The Earth is also billions of years old, since they hold to it being created at the same time, according to Genesis 1.1. How do gap theory adherents view the days of creation? Well, for the gap theory, it's actually not day ages. It's kind of strange. Even though they believe in millions of years, they also believe in literal 24-hour days. They actually believe in a literal account of creation except for that gap, except for that gap between verses 1 and 2. So they do believe in 24-hour days, but they are of recreation, not creation. Where did life come from? In this view, it came from God. How did he do it? He created it. How did God create it? 
He spoke it. They still affirm that God spoke things into existence. It's just that he did it billions of years ago and then destroyed everything he created and then did it all over again. So how, where did life come from? It was originally created by God's word. It was all destroyed, and then it was recreated. Uh, hold your question. I'm going to have a lot to prepare, or a lot to present today, so I'll get to your question a little bit later. Um, where did death come from? Oh, actually, I skipped one. Where did man come from? Now, that might be a little bit harder to answer because I didn't, it wasn't part of my description, but many gap theory adherents, they say that soulless men were part of the original creation and rebellion with Lucifer, and they were all destroyed. Real men with souls did not appear till God created them specially in his second creation. So where did man come from? Soulless men were part of the original creation. Real men came in the second creation some billions of years ago. Where did death come from? Where does death appear in the earth? Or when does death appear, rather? In the gap, right? As a result of, say that again. Uh, well, they would not say, well, technically, sin comes back through the sin of Adam, but it originally appeared through whose sin? Yes, Stephen. Lucifer's. Death comes through Lucifer's fall, not Adam's fall. God judges the whole world and destroys it. So in their view, you could argue that death comes into the world twice. It came through Lucifer, everything was destroyed, and then it comes again through Adam. Now, how do they identify Genesis 1 to 11 in terms of genre? Well, it is history, but mixed with something else, mixed with myth. What's mythical? Well, they would say the flood is not completely factual. Because the Luciferian flood is thought to give us the geological and fossil record, a global flood in Noah's time cannot be allowed as that would taint the fossil record, which was supposed to be established in Lucifer's days as ruler of the earth. So we have the gap theory. Let's now take a look at a second common view, progressive creation. Progressive creation. Now this is a relatively recent idea that seeks to embrace the Big Bang as the origin of the universe, and it also allows for the geological evolution of the earth, but it rejects biological evolution. We're going to get the uh, agreement with the claims of scientists when it comes to the Earth age and the geological record, but not biological evolution. Progressive creation suggests that God created life in spurts and allowed many species to go extinct and then be recreated in slightly different forms over billions of years. That's what this picture is of here on the slide. Those are mammoths on the left and elephants on the right. It's as if God created mammoths at one time, let them all die out, and then created elephants later. They didn't evolve. Mammoths didn't become elephants. Elephants were just recreated after all the mammoths died. The rock layers in progressive creation's view, they contain a record of the history of life on Earth, including pre-humans who did not have a spirit, yet strongly resembled modern humans. The rocks also contain evidence of death, disease, and suffering. The flood, in their view, was a local event but it's referred to as universal because it would impact all humans on Earth at the time and in the future. So it wasn't global, but it, it had a global influence. Now you might be thinking, well, where are they getting these ideas? 
this idea of spurts of creation, this stuff isn't in the Bible. Well, you have to understand, they get it from nature. Proponents of progressive creation consider nature to be like a 67th book of the Bible. They look to that book to teach them about human origins and the history of the earth and universe. Really, it's just taking the idea of natural or general revelation, which is a biblical concept, and turn it into a justification for using conclusions based on the observations of the natural world to reinterpret what the Bible says. But you remember that we emphasize in this class, while nature does show forth the glorious existence of God and some of his attributes, it nonetheless cannot be properly interpreted without the Bible. You need the Bible to correctly interpret the message of creation. Moreover, the Bible never claims that you can use nature to work out a history of the universe or to determine how it was created, to determine exactly how it was created. But they use nature like a book of the Bible. It has the same authority. Progressionist creationist views have been popularized by Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist turned apologist, and the organization that he founded, Reasons to Believe. And it still has many adherents today. All right, let's now look at our chart and make sure we have all the information there regarding progressive creation. How old would progressive creationists say the Earth or the universe is? We can actually be more specific. It is billions of years, but they're going to agree with scientists. And scientists say? That's right, about 13.7 billion years old. The universe is 13.7 billion years old, and the Earth then, if they agree with scientists, and they do, usually, the Earth is? A little bit less, about four and a half billion years old. That's the current scientific consensus. Four and a half to five, I think, but four and a half is what we'll say. Roughly 4.5 billion years. What are the days of creation in the, the view of progressive creationists? They're not actual days. They're ages, and there's also something unique, something else unique about these days. They overlap. And they have to, because in the fossil record, you have certain kinds of creatures existing at the same time that were not created on the same day. So the days must run into each other somehow. The days overlap. So what are their view of the days? They're actually overlapping ages. How does life appear in the progressive creationist view? God did it, and how did God do it? Does God use natural processes, or does he speak it into existence? Actually, not here, though it might be a little bit confusing because of the way it's kind of like evolution, but it isn't. God still speaks life into existence, in their view. But it's in waves. It's in bursts over successive ages. So again, to give you an example, God creates a bunch of single-celled organisms or small marine creatures. Then lets millions of years go by. Some die out, some continue, and then God creates the next bunch of creatures. He's doing it all miraculously and by command, but not all at the same time. He's letting these phases go by, millions of years. When does man appear, in their view? Well, they would say that he was specially created in the last burst of creative activity, sometime over 100,000 years ago. But he looked very much like earlier soulless hominids. They were pre-men. 
that were part of these phases of creation who didn't have souls, but at the very end of all this creation, God creates men with souls. The last phase. When does death appear in the creation? Uh, yeah, Stephen. Yeah, it's always there. It's there from the beginning. Animals are left to die out. So death was always part of creation. It was not the result of Adam's sin. What genre is Genesis 1 to 11 to them? Well, because of the drastic reinterpretation of the narrative, they say it's not narrative. It's something like a poetic, mythical representation of history. They say Genesis 1 to 11 is a poetic or mythical representation of real history. And the flood, in their view, is going to be If a fossil record is established by these creatures dying in these various phases of God over millions of years, then the flood can't be that big of a deal. The flood must be a local flood. So that is the progressive creation view. Remember, we're still we're looking at these generally. I'm sure there are people who are progressive creationists say, oh, I don't agree with that part. But we're looking generally at the view. So we have the gap theory, we have progressive creation, and finally, theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. This one we might be the most familiar with. But it is the broadest category and includes so many diverse ideas, it's a little hard to define. All adherents of theistic evolution would agree that the secular explanation of the age and the universe, the age of the universe and the earth, are accurate. We can trust the scientists when they make claims about the age of the earth and the universe. They also pretty universally believe that the flood was a local event. Or maybe it was a made up event, but certainly it's local if it happened. All would agree that life on Earth evolved from simple organisms. But some believe that God miraculously commanded the first spark of life, while others say, no, God actually didn't do anything with life. He just created the Earth, and life spontaneously happened. God didn't actually do anything about it. God, in their view, never creates any creature by command. He may have created the first life, but... Others say, no, he just created the world, life spontaneously generated. Some theistic evolutionists would accept that as evolution played out, God had no intervening role. He just watched what happened. While others saw or see God guiding the evolutionary process at important steps. So some say God just lets it be, evolve as whatever is going to happen, and some say he's guiding the evolutionary process. Regardless of those different variations, disease, death, and struggle were all part of God's original plan for his creation. Most would agree that humans evolved from previous hominids and that God injected a spirit into man at some point. So man is gradually evolving along with the other creatures, and then when he reaches a certain point of development, God gives them his spirit, gives them the, the spirit of life. Well, some say the minority of theistic evolutionists would say, no, everything else evolved, but man was created specially. Some do say that, but that's the minority view. For theistic evolution, the days of Genesis 1 are viewed as poetic expressions of vast ages. A day-age interpretation. And as I said, there was never a globe-covering flood. The day-age view was first popularized by Hugh Miller in the early 1800s. 
the same time Chalmers was espousing the gap theory. But as Darwin introduced ideas of biological evolution, those explanations were incorporated into the day-age views, and they constitute theistic evolution today. Organizations like the Discovery Institute and the BioLogos, and BioLogos, they sponsor teachers who teach various forms of theistic evolution. And certainly you've probably encountered it as well. Okay, let's double check our charts. Age of the universe according to the theistic evolution? About 13.7 billion years. And the Earth? About 4.5 billion years. The days of creation are seen as? Ages, long ages. The days are long ages. These are poetic expressions of long ages. How did life originate? Two possibilities. Yeah, Rob. That's right. God created the first spark, or? That's right. God allowed it to spontaneously generate after it created the earth. What was man's origin? How did man become created? Again, two views here. He evolved from earlier hominids, and God gave him a spirit at some point, or, that's right, God specially created man apart from all the other evolution at some point. Origin of death? Always there. It's from the beginning of creation and the beginning of life, certainly present before Adam's sin. Genesis 1 to 11, then, must be seen as what kind of literature? Yeah, some kind of poetry, some kind of big metaphor, mythical representation of what God really did. And the flood, how do they view the flood? Local or mythical? It certainly did, or what's that, George? That's right, it might not have ever happened, and if it did happen, it certainly did not impact the geological or fossil record. Okay, so this is an overview of three common old earth views. Now, I know, Rob, you had a question. What was your question? Right, we'll say more about that in just a moment, but to repeat your comment, it's, especially if you haven't encountered these views before, it's actually shocking the conclusions that people have come to because you say, how did you get that from the Bible? If you just start from the Bible, I don't see how you get there. Other questions or comments? Yeah, Ian. Well, that's a good question. Right, can you repeat the whole thing? I only heard the last part of it. Okay, yeah, good question. So, that's a good question. How did these theories become popularized? Was it one theologian of each of you? Was it a group of theologians? I don't know if I can answer that specifically other than to mention again that certain people were influential for each one of these views, like Thomas Chalmers with the gap theory, Hugh Miller with the day-age view, which would become theistic evolution and, and would play a role in progressive creation. But certainly many theologians in the 1800s and since then have embraced some kind of view of millions of years. 
the minority of the church since the 1800s has been a young earth view. You did have your scriptural, scriptural geologists in the 1800s who were contending against that, saying, no, we're actually violating scripture to go to some other kind of view. But most theologians promoted some kind of old earth creation approach since the 1800s. So I don't know. There certainly were influential people as part of that, but most theologians were promoting it in one way or the other. I mean, even Charles Spurgeon, as we mentioned, was totally solid on most points of theology, but he accepted an old earth interpretation. He said, whoa, look, science has discovered that the earth is actually really old. And he never actually thought through all the implications of that for how one interprets, interprets Genesis. Other questions or comments? Okay, so we've examined these different views. Certainly there are many more old earth views of creation, and even these three views we've looked at are broad categories. And some old earth creationists will actually believe part of one view and part of another. But after hearing these basic descriptions and filling in the information on your charts, you probably notice that they fundamentally share something, all these views, even with their different parts. What's fundamentally true of them all? I think, Rob, you were getting at this before. Yeah, Mike. Well, it's not that they never open the Bible, but there's certainly, <laughs> they certainly, there's something that's really guiding their interpretation. Yes, Stephen. I see what you're saying. That's a good observation. You may notice just the way that these are situated on the chart that you get further and further away from the scriptures. I think this is what you're getting at, Stephen. That with the gap theory, it's mostly a literal affirmation of what Genesis says. Just a little bit of extra stuff put in. But progressive creation goes even further away, and theistic evolution is the farthest. But if you go by little steps, it doesn't seem that far. But certainly, as uh, I think you're also getting at in the beginning, that when you have, and this is certainly true in science, when you have an interpretation that you really believe is right, but you don't see it in, in the data or, in, in our case, the text, you have to twist things to make it there. You have to bend the way that you see certain things. And each one of these views, you see a very clear desire to accommodate what scientists are claiming. Millions of years, billions of years. How can we make that fit with the Bible? Because it's obviously true. We have to figure out some way. Okay, a gap. Gap is one way we can do it for progressive creation or theistic evolution. In each one of these views, what really is motivating these different beliefs is trust in man's scientific claims. 
and a desire to fit with that authority. Because, truly, can we say that gap theory developed because of discipline exegesis of the Bible? No, its origin in the 1800s at the popularization of anti-biblical uniformitarianism and its shameless attempt to, com to accommodate cosmological and geological claims with the Bible, it shows us its true motivation. It's simply trying to fit in millions of years. Or similarly, does the progressive creation theory come from inside the biblical text or outside of it? It clearly comes from outside. They admit this themselves, saying that God seems to be communicating through nature. And they say he has the same authority and specificity as the scriptures. You certainly don't get overlapping day ages or creation, of, creation in phases from Genesis 1. You have to get them from outside the Bible. And theistic evolution is most obviously a capitulation to the scientific claims of our day. People want to reinterpret the Bible to fit the claims of those who don't believe the Bible and who make calculations as if the Bible's history is not true. This doesn't make sense. This is why Answers in Genesis in our Sunday School class have said again and again, the issue with origins is not evidence. It is authority. Where do we start in order to understand truth? What do we use to assess the various truth claims of the world? If we don't start with the Bible and trust its authority, we will end up in error. We will add to and take away from the scriptures. We will end up doing injury to ourselves and even to the gospel. And we'll hurt God's church. As I've said before, I want to reemphasize, if we have another authority greater than or on the same level as the Bible on this issue or on any issue, then that same external authority will cause us to eventually compromise in other areas if we're being mentally consistent. Because whatever you think is the authority, you're going to continue to cater to that authority. So if you think that what society says or man's ideas are the authority, then it could lead to, if you're being consistent, compromise on abortion. Well, they say it's not life. Homosexuality. Well, they say it's genetic. It's just part of what people are. Premarital sex. Well, does the Bible really say? Miracles in the Bible, mm, did those really happen or were they just a... Uh, or are they just a way to accommodate the, the audience that believed in miracles? Or other things. We need to wake up. And we need to stand against this kind of extremely injurious compromise. And we must understand that old earth interpreters are actually very active in promoting their understanding of Genesis. The teachers of Biologos, for instance, they openly teach that Adam and Eve were not the first parents of all humans but instead were a nice story to give the Israelites some kind of history, or they're just a big metaphor of the history of redemption. Furthermore, many Christians today claim that to reject an old earth or evolutionary ideas is to reject scientific observation in total, and it makes Christianity like a cult. They say, oh, we'd really have credibility in the world today if only those rabid young earth creationists would get their heads out of the sand and acknowledge what is patently obvious to everyone else. Old Earth and evolutionary views have spread and are spreading through the Christian colleges and seminaries, the same places responsible for training the next generation of Christian leaders and pastors. The Bible's authority is being devalued more and more in favor of man's opinions. There was a rather famous or infamous editorial article in the June 2011 issue of Christianity Today that recognized the contradictions between the Bible's historical Adam and Eve 
and the claims of today's scientists. Their conclusion? We Christians simply need to be patient and let our theologians do some, quote, creative thinking, unquote, to resolve the issue. No, we don't need creative thinking. We need the boldness to affirm what the Bible has always plainly taught. When it comes to right doctrine, it's not a matter of creativity. It's a matter of sticking to what has been passed down to us. Was this not the command that Paul gave to Timothy? In 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 to 21, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. We need to hold to, we need to keep the gospel as it has been entrusted to us. We need to keep and stand for what the Bible clearly teaches. But someone will say, wait a second, hasn't the church gotten science wrong before? Didn't Christians once use the Bible to justify believing in a flat earth? Or that the sun goes around the earth and not the earth around the sun? Maybe something similar is happening today with the age of the earth. I'd love to teach a whole Sunday school in response to that question. This is an argument by analogy, but I would like to point out that it is a false analogy. It is a not helpful analogy. I can't teach a whole Sunday school on it, but let me briefly say a few things in response to this objection. For the sake of, um, I'll do it briefly for the sake of time. First, yes, it is evident in church history that the church and what is considered orthodox at times considered beliefs, certain beliefs to be orthodox that were actually false and heretical. However, correcting these errors always involved two factors, reestablishing the Bible's ultimate authority and reestablishing proper hermeneutics. When the church, when orthodoxy was actually error, correction required affirmation of the Bible's ultimate authority and affirmation of proper hermeneutics. These factors were on display in the Reformation. When the Catholic Church was adding another authority to the scriptures and not practicing proper hermeneutics, the Reformation corrected that. These two factors were even on display when the Church corrected its thinking on geocentrism, as I hope to display in just a moment. But I also need to say, while it is evident the Church at times has been wrong, and what it considered orthodoxy, it is a myth, long debunked, that medieval Christians believed in a flat earth. That's actually not true. No Christians were believing in a flat earth, or almost no Christians were believing in a flat earth. Where did this myth come from? Who popularized this myth? Surprise, surprise, someone from the Enlightenment, looking to denigrate those who came before in the, quote, dark ages, unquote. Belief in a spherical earth was actually common in the Mediterranean world since about 300 B.C., and it remained the dominant view throughout the Middle Ages. But about geocentrism, this idea that the church once taught, based on the Bible, that the sun goes around the earth. Let me give you some background on that issue. It is true. Up until the 1600s, most people believed that the earth stood still and everything orbited around it. Catholic and Protestant theologians even asserted that this belief was confirmed by the Bible 
in verses like Psalm 93.1, which says in the King James Version, The Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty, the Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. Seems pretty clear, right? Pretty straightforward. This verse and others like it in the Psalms indicated, seem to indicate, God doesn't let the earth move. It doesn't spin, it doesn't orbit, God says it doesn't move. This was consistent with an ancient Aristotelian view of the universe. Aristotle had said the same thing. And it was also consistent with an extra-biblical assumption that, as the most important part of God's creation, man and his home would be at the center of the universe. Furthermore, geocentric models of the solar system actually produce decently accurate results when predicting the movement of celestial objects. So people had a, a number of reasons to believe in geocentrism. It seemed to work in many instances. However, the models were not totally accurate. And in the early 1600s, astronomers began to make new stellar observations, and they theorized alternate models of the solar system to see if they could improve the accuracy of their predictions, of their calculations. And this is where we get guys like Nicolaus Copernicus, Tycho Brahe, Johannes Kepler, and Galileo Galilei. And they're making it important advancements in astronomy. That's Galileo over there. Galileo might be the most famous because he invented the telescope and was actually put on trial by the Catholic Church for asserting a heliocentric or sun-centered universe. Since science has subsequently vindicated Galileo's viewpoint, he has become a rallying cry for many who have questioned the historical or scientific claims of the Church or of the Bible. And some old earth advocates bring up Galileo today. It's just like the sun being the center of the solar system. Christians are using the Bible but they're actually wrong in the same way that Christians were wrong when they were dealing with Galileo. However, let me present briefly why using Galileo and heliocentrism to parallel today's conflict over the age of the Earth is not justified. First, the scientific issues are categorically different. Heliocentrism was asserted based on observational science, while an old Earth assertion is based on historical science. Observational science is repeatable, and it's observable to all. Historical science is not repeatable and is heavily based on assumptions. So the parallel fails on that ground. Secondly, Galileo was not the victim of religion, the church, or the Bible, but of, polit of political and personal circumstances. He was the victim of the political and scientific establishment. It's actually ironic. The people that most hindered Galileo from presenting heliocentrism publicly were actually his fellow scientists. Because Galileo had made many enemies with his extreme antagonism and egoism. For example, Galileo would frequently dismiss his colleagues' theories and observations about the cosmos through the use of humiliating ad hominem attacks, which were effective, but they made Galileo quite unpopular. Galileo knew that if he published any new scientific idea, it would likely get picked apart by the enemies he had made, so he hesitated. Actually, it was the church, many churchmen, including the pope, who encouraged Galileo to publish his theories. The pope wanted him to explain heliocentric theory. But Galileo 
perhaps because of his egoism, or maybe it was by accident, he found a way to embarrass the Pope in the publication he produced about heliocentrism, and as the Pope was already feeling vulnerable politically, he dismissed all Galileo's supporters from the papal court and found an excuse to put Galileo on trial. So actually, Galileo doesn't work very well as a rallying cry against biblical interpretation because the things that were hurting Galileo, holding back Galileo, were actually science and politics, which also hold us back today, do they not? To hold back true science. Thirdly, the passages that were used to support geocentrism are different in quality to those passages that support young earth creationism. The biblical support for geocentrism comes mostly from poetic passages. Psalms, passages that say the earth does not move, while support for a young earth comes primarily from historical narrative passages. I would say the, the support for a young earth is actually much more extensive than the support was for geocentrism. Let me explain this a bit further. First of all, it's usually unwise to base doctrine solely or mainly off of descriptions in poetic passages, because they're figurative. They're frequently figurative. And second of all, if you apply proper hermeneutics to these passages, if you do a comparison study, for example, if you do a comparison study of the Hebrew word translated moved in the King James Version, you quickly find that in every instance, the sense of that word is of something much greater than simple movement. I can't show you all the passages, but to summarize, in other instances, the word in context is used to mean dropped, tossed, fell, slipped as so to fall, fundamentally troubled, put out of joint, suffered calamity, catastrophically upheaved. Moreover, the passive form, be moved, is almost always used figuratively. I think it is used figuratively every time. I have to go double check that though. So these passages about the earth not being moved in the Psalms are actually about God's promise to preserve the earth as a strong and merciful creator. God established the earth. Therefore, no one will cause it to be unestablished. In that sense, they will not cause it to be moved. He's in total control. So really, those using such passages to justify geocentrism were being too literal. And why did they do this? Probably because it fit with the prevailing scientific theories of the day. Most people believed in geocentrism, and so it made sense to just take these passages literally. It fit with what everybody already believed. The principle, again, on display is that applying normal hermeneutic methods, I'm sorry, the principle on display is that one must always apply the hermeneutical methods that one, is, that one always ought to apply. If proper hermeneutics causes you to revise your position you took on a scientific or theological issue, great. But if you have to violate proper hermeneutics in order to accommodate thinking outside the Bible, that is a dangerous error. It's all about affirming the Bible's authority and proper hermeneutics and recapturing those things. Finally, another reason why this parallel is not helpful, scientists have a much worse track record than orthodox theologians. It is silly to say that one should question orthodox biblical interpretations, like a young earth, and not today's scientific claims, when scientific consensus has produced such memorable gems for us in our past as 
radioactive substances are completely safe for you and your baby. And bleeding should cure you of your sickness. This is what scientific consensus told us. Now, does this mean that we should never trust anything scientists say? No. But it does mean that we should recognize the fallibility of human thinking, especially when it uses Bible-denying assumptions. Theologians are not always right, but neither are scientists. What's the key to finding truth to stand on? Starting with the Word of God and interpreting it as it was always meant to be interpreted. That is, by exegesis. Let the Bible speak for itself. Based on, observe, interpret, apply. According to the liter literal, historical, grammatical, hermeneutical method. That's the one that we affirm in this church. That's the normal hermeneutic for understanding any piece of literature. You use those cues to recapture the passage's originally intended and understood meaning. That's how you discern discern what is true, what you can stand on. Theologians weren't doing that with geocentrism. And neither are many Christians doing so today when it comes to creation and the age of the earth. Before we wrap up today, let me reiterate that young earth creationism, biblical creationism, is not salvific. Our ultimate goal as we go into the world and speak to unbelievers is not to persuade them that the earth is young. Our goal is to present them the reality of the gospel. Jesus is God. He came to save you from the sins that were going to destroy you and damn you. And if you repent and believe, you will be saved. Part of that presentation should include a very clear affirmation of the Bible's authority as truth. And if someone questions a biblical account of creation, we shouldn't hesitate to defend it. Though we need not feel like we have to prove a young earth to each person that we present the gospel. We just simply affirm the authority of the Bible and whatever it says. Furthermore, when we find out that our brother or sister believes in or is open to an old earth, that does not mean that they are in sin or that they are not saved. Yes, they are in error. And we should be concerned about that because it will be, it will cause injury to them. We should help them, but it's not a salvation issue. I don't want that to be missed. There's one other quotation I wanted to share with you before we look at some application questions. I found this really striking, but on the theme of proper hermeneutics and do you really get old earth interpretations from the Bible, there was a Wheaton College professor who in 1990 makes a very interesting confession. I'm going to read, this is actually a footnote in the epilogue section of Coming to Grips with Genesis. This is Davis Young, who was a former day-age proponent, but then confessed, actually, that's not true. It's not true, what I've been saying all this time. I've been mutilating the text to make it true. Listen to what he says, because I think it's very relevant for really the way that many, if not all, old earth interpreters are going through. Here's what he said. The day-age hypothesis insisted with at least a semblance of textual plausibility that the days of creation were long periods of indeterminate length, although the immediate context implies that the term yom for day really means day. There were some textual obstacles the day-agers developed an amazing agility in surmounting. The footnote says, after discussing some examples of contradictions in order of events before, between Genesis 1 and evolutionary history, 
He continued, this obvious point of conflict, however, failed to dissuade well-intentioned Christians, my earlier self included, from nudging the text to mean something different from what it says. In my case, I suggested that the events of the days overlapped. Having publicly repented of that textual mutilation a few years ago, I will move on without further embarrassing myself. Then another note here. Following examination of other unsuccessful techniques for harmonizing Genesis with old earth geology, Young confessed, genius as all of these schemes may be, one is struck by the forced nature of them all. While the exegetical gymnastic maneuvers have displayed remarkable flexibility, I suspect that they have resulted in temporary damage to the theological musculature. Interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11 as factual history does not mesh with the emerging picture of the early history of the universe and of humanity that has been deciphered by scientific investigation. Now that's a really interesting conclusion. And you would expect, once he realizes that the Bible does not fit with what scientists say, that he would affirm the Bible. But unfortunately, this was his conclusion. The Bible may be expressing history in non-factual terms. He went further the other way. He said, I, they don't fit together, so this means that what the Bible says isn't true. Really striking confession. Anyways, we actually don't have time to get to the, all the application questions today. And there are five in your book that I think are, are really valuable. So please look at those. I didn't want to end today without doing two other things. One is, remind you about workbooks and devotional, family devotionals for next quarter. If you'd like a workbook, if you, if you enjoy using those, you get benefit out of using those, they're free, but only if you sign up for them. We want to make sure that everybody who gets them is actually using them. There's a sign-up sheet in the back. Make sure after Sunday school today that your name is on that sheet or that you've already spoken to me via email. Secondly, if you have ordered a family devotional in the past, rather, if you ordered one for quarter two and you picked it up, you paid for it, then I'm going to assume that you want one for next quarter. And I'm going to order you one. If you don't want that, please let me know. Or if you do want one and you didn't order one before, please let me know as well. We want to put our order in the next week or two. So if you would like a family devotional for next quarter, or if you would not like one after you previously ordered one, please let me know. The other thing, our memory verse. I said that this week we would make sure that we actually checked our memorization of Exodus 20.11. So if you know it, please say it with me. Hopefully I recite it correctly. So Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. If you have other questions or comments, please see me afterwards. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, it really is a great grief to see how your scriptures are explained away, how, how, Lord, people, how we, God, are so, so reverent and fearful of man that 
we let what he claims about you and about your word to change what your word says. God, I pray that this would not be the case. Lord, that you would give us a firm belief in the the truthfulness of your word. Thank you for giving us your word, God, to study and to learn from. I pray, God, that we would all see it and affirm it as the absolute authority, that we would start there, that we would stay there, that we would look at everything in the world through the lens of Scripture. I pray, God, that those who do not yet have this conviction would come to, and that, God, that you would use us through the loving explanation of what your word actually says, the loving explanation about what exegesis really is, what proper interpretation really is, we can bring them back from that error, bring them back from that injury of oneself. Lord, thank you for being so gracious. Thank you for preserving your word. Thank you for thank you for this teaching. Lord, it's been such a blessing to me. I pray, Lord, that you would by your spirit make it a blessing to the people who have heard it. Bless the rest of the service today, God. We celebrate you as the great creator, so powerful, merciful creator and preserver of this earth. Thank you for preserving it up to this time and until um, the date you have determined. In Jesus' name, amen.